And I am so glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, we're going to continue what we were talking about yesterday, and that is removing doubt. Can I trust the Bible? And uh, before we begin, why don't we have a word of prayer? How about that? Father, we're thankful for an, an absolutely spectacular day in this beautiful setting, and we are just so thankful to you that we can be here and that we can experience it. We can experience the beauty of your genius, creative genius, that we can experience the beauty of fellowship in Christ, that we can spend time talking about this book that you have brought to us through your spirit. And Father, we pray that we'll all leave here energized, encouraged, inspired, instructed, so that, Father, we can go out into the world and that we can shine our light and that others can be drawn to you. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Okay, so let me kind of tell you where we were at yesterday and kind of tell you where we're going today. And probably, I'm going to guess that most of you were here yesterday. Maybe we have some newcomers this morning. And, uh, but what I wanted to do this year in the early bird class is, is really discuss the Bible itself. And as I said yesterday, uh, because we're living in an increasingly unbelieving secular world. And so there was a time when we could go to people and uh, we could sit down with them. And when those doors were open that we could share the gospel or talk about spiritual things with somebody. Uh, we started in the same place. Uh, there was a, a general respect and, and uh, an acknowledgement that the Bible was a God book. That... Uh, that God in some way, through his spirit, supervised every writer of the Bible so that when they dipped their quills into the inkwell and they, and they put that ink on the parchment or the papyrus or whatever the writing material was, that, that God was supervising them in such a way, didn't override their personality. Uh, we know, as, uh, and, and those who know the languages and study it meticulously know that uh, each writer has their own personality and all that stuff comes through in the writing. They all have their own vocabulary. It's kind of like one time I remember when I was in Indiana and I was just starting out. It was my first work, my first ministry. And, and somebody asked me, to, would I write them a letter about something? I said, man, I'd be glad to do that. And so I, I wrote it and, and his wife looked at it and she said to him, Lewis, you didn't write that. And uh, he goes, well, what do you mean? He said, because you don't sound like that. Dan wrote that, didn't he? And, uh, and he's like, yeah, he wrote it for me. You know, it's, it's my personality and my vocabulary. It wasn't his. Well, New Testament writers were the same. And, and so God didn't overrule their personality. It wasn't this uh, dictation process where they went into some kind of trance and he just kind of, their arm was there and he kind of supernaturally moved it. It wasn't like that. They had their personalities. They had their vocabularies. And and they maintained all of that, and yet God in his omnipotence, in his power, was able to supervise them in such a way so that every single word that they wrote were the words that he wanted written. And so there was a time, as I said, when we would all start at that place and uh, with people, and, and I'd ask the question, now, before we get started, let's make sure that we're on the same page and that I know where to begin I think I know the answer to this. Do you believe that the Bible is literally the Word of God? And it used to be that people would go, yes. And so, boom, we could then start in whatever subject we wanted to. And as I said yesterday, those days are really in the past. 
because increasingly more and more, uh, when you sit down with people and if you ask them that question, do you believe that the Bible is literally a God book, that he is the ultimate author? Uh, A lot of people will say now, I don't know. And so we can't start talking about spiritual realities until they believe that the book where we want to inform them of spiritual realities literally came from God. You know, we're going to use that book to explain their condition, that they're infected with sin. And God is moral perfection, and he is infinitely holy, and because of that, he can't fellowship with sin. And we're going to use this book to explain that. Because in that book, I believe and you believe that God disclosed his thoughts and words and he explains what he's done through Christ and why he's done it. And so we're going to use that then to explain their condition, their problem, their ultimate problem, sin. And then we're going to use it to explain the ultimate solution, Jesus Christ. So if they don't believe it's a God book, then there's no, there's no point discussing those things. And so more and more, we're having to deal with questions about, is the Bible really from God? And we're also living in an age, because it is an increasingly secular world, there are more and more people who are trying to undermine Scripture, and uh, people like Bart Ehrman. Has anyone here heard of Bart Ehrman? Have you ever heard that name? Raise your hand. So there's a few people who've heard that name. He's kind of like the poster child now for trying to undermine the integrity of Scripture. He is a professor, professor of religion at UNC, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he's wrote a series of best-selling books on a New York Times bestseller list. They're written in real popular language. And, you know, he's an authority. He's an expert on the text. And all of these books have one purpose in mind. And that is to cast doubt on the reliability of the Bible. To undermine the integrity of Scripture. To suggest that it is not what it claims to be a God book. So that's why it's really important to deal with the kind of things that we're dealing with today. We need to be pretty literate in when someone asks or when we sit down and say, do you believe the Bible is a God book? And they say, I really don't know that we can say, okay, well, then let's talk about the Bible. I, want, I, I believe the Bible is a God book because if you look at the next slide, the first slide we looked at last, uh, yesterday, now, by the way, I might say last week, you know, preachers, are, it's, it's always about Sunday. So if I do, just ignore me. Uh, you know it means yesterday morning. Uh, but here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, uh, it's one of the places in Scripture that we see the claim of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And, uh, and it, it is sufficient to make us what God wants us to be to reach our fullest spiritual potential. And so I say to them, I say, okay, here's what the Bible claims about itself, that it's a God book, and I believe that it's a God book. And so uh, the question then is, well, you don't just accept that claim. Nobody just accepts that claim, at least you shouldn't, because the Bible is not the only book that claims to be divine in its origin. There are a lot of books out there that claim to be supernatural, and so... uh, I'm not just going to blindly accept the claim of the Bible. And, and I hope you're not going to blindly accept the claim of the Bible. And so as I'm sitting down with people and I'm saying, I hope you're not going to blindly accept the claim of the Bible. Uh, the question is, is there evidence that supports the claim that the Bible really is a God book? And so that's kind of what we talked about. We see it in the next couple of slides. 
not only is there evidence, if you go to the next slide, not only is there evidence, there is an abundant amount of evidence. And we talked a little bit about that yesterday. That really wasn't the intention, uh, but I mentioned three categories, and you can see that on the next slide, like the historical precision and accuracy of Scripture. Look, if the Bible really did come from an all-knowing God, then it better be absolutely precise in everything that it presents. Uh, because if it's wrong in things that we can empirically investigate, like history or geography, matters like that, if it's wrong in those, then I sure can't trust it in matters that we can't empirically investigate, like sin and salvation. So, uh, and when we read the Bible, what we do see is incredible precise historical accuracy, geographical accuracy. We talked about some of that yesterday. Uh, we see that the Bible wasn't a child of its times. Compared to other ancient books, the Bible reflects insights that literally are centuries or thousands of years ahead of its time. We talked about some of those in terms of health issues and medical issues. We talked about it just a little bit in terms of just how people viewed the world. Uh, other advanced cultures like the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they looked at like the... Uh, you know, the, the, the stars and the heavenly bodies and, and they thought they were gods. And, and that was just the way, you know, that was just the product of those times. They didn't have an understanding. But we see in the Bible just the very opposite of that. The Bible from the very beginning says, no, no, they're not alive. They were inanimate objects. And they're not alive and they're not gods and they don't determine the course of history and uh, the, the Bible is just so far ahead of its times in these matters. And then we talked about things like fulfilled prophecy. Nothing is stronger to support the Bible's claim that it's a God book than fulfilled prophecy. And we talked about one or two of those. Well, let's move on today and we'll go to the next slide. So, oh, oh, before we do that, let's look at the next slide. I just, uh, I, I revamped the, the presentation this morning. Because there were a couple of people who asked questions yesterday about, okay, uh, afterward, they met me and said, hey, we're, what kind of resources would you recommend? Because in three mornings of about 35 or 40 minutes together, there's no way we can cover a, a lot of information. I just kind of want to splash around a little bit on the surface and maybe whet your appetite, help you see the need to prepare yourself in these issues, uh, and then point you to some resources that might be helpful. Uh, here's a resource that might be helpful if you're interested. This is in Answers in Genesis. Uh, some of you may be familiar with that organization. Have any of you been to the Ark Encounter? Uh, okay, I see a few hands. It is over near Cincinnati. Okay. I, I, I was going to guess that probably way out here that a lot of people haven't quite yet gotten east. Uh, you know, it's only about a four-hour drive from my house. And so uh, there were three couples from church, and they took their kids uh, there this weekend. They texted me, and they, man, the Ark Encounter is amazing. Well, the Creation Museum, the Ark Encounter, uh, the people who developed both of those. And if you, listen, if you are ever in the Cincinnati area, please, please go to both of those. Go to both of those. Uh, it really is two fantastic uh, very well-developed, uh, very, very impressive, state-of-the-art 
uh, uh, places that really emphasize a biblical worldview. That this is the pe- these are the people who do that. Now they are an ev- evangelical organization. So you know if, when it comes to matters, of course, like the nature of the church and 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 some of our doctrinal distinctives, we would disagree with them on some of those things, obviously. But when it comes to these kind of matters. We're on the same page. They have a very, very high view of Scripture. They believe, just like me, that the Bible literally is a God book and He is the ultimate author. And they have a tremendous amount of resources that you can get. So this is their website. Get online, look around. When you have questions about, I mean, you name it, anything in the apologetics field, uh, you're going to find great articles there. You're going to find great resources there. I have a great friend, uh, they got two little kids, he's one of our deacons, he's a licensed counselor. He really kind of also has a specialty in, in his interest in apologetics, and we use him a lot to teach in apologetics. And he was one of the couples up there this weekend, he said, he texted me as we were driving over here, he said, man, this is, this is an amazing place, the Ark Encounter. And he said, and the bookstore is incredible. I go, I know, I was just there two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. And I bought books from there. It, it really is. They have great resources. So that's who they are. Uh, and, and these are some that I picked out. You can buy these as a set. You'll see, Is the Bible True? That's a, about a one-hour DVD. Uh, you can buy these individually or you can buy them as a set. I think if you get online, like you can buy them as a set for like 30 bucks, 35 bucks, something like that. And the two in the back, How Do We Know the Bible is True?, uh, those are both books, and they're about 300 pages each. So volume one and volume two, and then DVD. So that'll have a lot of good information on it. So that's a really good website to get information like this. Uh, next slide, please. Another resource that uh, probably more of you are familiar with is Apologetics Press. And uh, you'll see Apologetics Press on the next slide, if we can kind of advance to that. Uh, Apologetics Press is based in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, these are good brethren, and uh, I'm, I'm sure probably, maybe, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I can't kind of take, talk about my normal, and my normal is east of the Mississippi, and so, uh, you know, the normal west of the Mississippi may, may be a little bit different, but I know east of the Mississippi, a lot of churches use the curriculum for Apologetics Press. We use the curriculum in our educational program uh, but they have a, a, a lot of great resources as well, a lot of great scholars who are involved in that. So, a, a couple of them are, are, are very close personal friends of mine. Uh, this is a DVD that was done by uh, Dr. Dave Miller, and uh, it is, Has the Bible Been Corrupted? This is some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about this morning and into tomorrow morning. And you can see from this, and I picked this up just from the website and, and, and just cut and pasted it. Uh, and you'll see he says the same thing that really I've said this morning. Skeptics, atheists, modernists have waged an aggressive war uh, against the Bible and trying to undermine public confidence in it. And so, uh, you know, erodes the faith of a lot of young people. And, uh, and, and so here's some of the questions. How do we know the Bible is transmitted accurately? How much manuscript evidence do we have? How can we be sure the Bible uh, we have is as God intended it? How do we know the original, how the original Bible read well, this is two DVDs. There are nine sessions. Dr. Miller's doing it. And each session's approximately 35 minutes. You can get on their website. Uh, this would be really, really, really good as well. 
the next slide, please. The last one that I will share with you. This is a recent book that was, just came out by Dr. Doug Burleson. Uh, I think you can pretty much only get it from Warren Apologetics. Uh, Warren Christian Apologetics Center, uh, that too is a center for apologetics that was recently established by our brethren over near Ohio Valley University and uh, uh, in West Virginia, Ohio area. There, Dr. Burleson is uh, a, a dear, dear friend of mine. Uh, we were in graduate school together. He's a, he's a young man. He's about 40 years old. He has four kids, ages about 1 to 12. He's the director of the uh, lectureship at Freed Hardeman. He is a, a professor of Bible, New Testament, and Greek at Freed Hardeman. Uh, Dr. Burleson, his specialty... Uh, and what he did his PhD and everything is in textual criticism. It is an, a, a, a meticulous examination of the original text of Scripture. And so this is his specialty. And he is a, an amazing young man, a humble young man, a scholar through and through. He's a preacher. He's, a, uh, he's one of the pulpit ministers at the Estes Congregation uh, there in Henderson, uh, so I had the deepest, deepest regard. I just read this. I finished reading it on the way over here. While Leola drove at times, I was reading Doug's book. Uh, and uh, it digs a little bit deeper than what we can go into. But, uh, but this is a real good book that I recommend as well. So there's three resources for you. Three different places. Uh, AnswersInGenesis.org, ApologeticsPress.org, Warren Apologetics, and Dr. Burleson's book. So... Uh, now, there are so, there's so much good stuff out there on this, uh, and uh, uh, these, uh, peruse these websites, or at, especially the first two, Apologetics Press and Answers in Genesis, and you'll find a lot of real good. Both of those organizations in matters about the text, I highly recommend. Okay, next slide. Okay. Well, then here's the question. Okay, after, here's what I do, and I can't, let me kind of walk you through it as as though I were... You know, sitting down with someone who said, well, I really don't know if the Bible is a God book. Like I said, the first thing that I would do is say, okay, uh, give me an opportunity to share with you the evidence that I think is pretty overwhelming that supports the Bible's claim to be a God book. And that'll probably take us, I don't know, it might take us two or three weeks. You know, I don't set a stopwatch on some studies it's because you just can't sometimes we think you need to set a stopwatch and if you don't have them in the water like at the end of the third study something's wrong it you know it doesn't always work that way sometimes you got to put people on a calendar and uh and instead of a stopwatch and so you know it might take us two or three weeks to meticulously walk through this evidence you know fulfilled prophecy and and the Bible's insight into things that are so far ahead of its time and historical accuracy and the unity of Scripture and yada, yada, yada. So, but after we get to that point, uh, one of the questions that we deal with, we come to this a lot, and that is, uh, and, and that they will usually bring it up because among those who are really trying to undermine Scripture, like this guy I'm telling, that I told you about, Bart Ehrman, uh, this, is, this is his favorite thing to do. It is, you can't trust the Bible. You, you can't trust that it's what it originally said. Uh, you can't trust, you know, the, the original message that wh whoever the original writers were, it's hopelessly lost. It's been garbled through the ages. 
And, uh, and so, you know, you can't have any real confidence in it. And so a lot of people in, in Western culture are, are, are being bombarded with that idea. And so this question comes up then. Okay, you know, Dan, I've heard that, that our translation, that this translation that, that we're looking at today, that that's not a translation of the original manuscripts. You know, the, the ones that these Bible writers used. Is that true? And the answer is, yeah, it's, it's not a translation of that manuscript. Well, do we have it somewhere? Do we have those? Do we have those letters somewhere? I have people ask me that. Again, as, as people come from different backgrounds, and many no real spiritual background, uh, these are real legitimate questions they have. Listen, are these letters like locked away somewhere? The ones that that Paul really wrote, and the answer is no. They're not locked away anywhere. They crumbled to dust long ago. They wore out. God didn't exercise his supernatural power to preserve this paper to last eternity that they originally wrote on. Those are gone. And so what we're reading then is a translation of a copy. Of a copy. Of a copy, of a copy, of a copy, of a copy, of a copy. And so that's what Ehrman uses, Dr. Ehrman and other Bible critics to say, see, it's just... You know, somewhere along the process there, you know, the, the original message has been hopelessly lost. And so if we don't have the original manuscripts, can we really be sure that that's been reliably preserved? Next slide, please. Well, uh, they'll say this. They'll go, it's kind of like this game. What, you recognize what this game is? What, what's this game? Gossip or another way it's uh, another term for it is, is it telephone, the old telephone game. And you know how that works. You know, you get in a circle. One person starts with a message. And they whisper it to the next person. Who whispers it to the next person. Who whispers it to the next person. All the way down the line until it comes to the last person. And then you want to see if the message that... The original message is preserved. And it's the same message that comes at the end. And so a lot of the people who are trying to undermine the, the transmission of the text. The text is it was transmitted from Paul or Matthew, or James, or Peter, and it's been transmitted through the centuries. They'll say, it's kind of like telephone. And, uh, and so we all know what happens in that game. And so just as, you know, you get this garbled message at the end of the telephone game, it's going to be, it's obviously the same way. Uh, that's the same dynamic at work as you're talking about the transmission of the text, Right? And the answer is, uh-uh. <laughs> it ain't nothing like the game of telephone. Nothing like that. You do know, right, that the game of telephone, you want to get a garbled message at the end, right? It ain't funny if it's the same one, right? <laughs> if the message always comes out the same, what's so fun about that? You want it to be, you know, some kind of crazy thing. Right? Ah, you know, that's what makes it fun. And so the intent is everybody's passing on the message. Somebody's going to purposely say something else because you want it to be a garbled message. But when it comes to the transmission of the text, it, was, it wasn't like that. The scribes who were copying texts and circulating texts they were really sensitive to the work that they were doing. 
first of all. They knew that they had a really a divine task. Most of them, whether they were professional scribes or whether they were amateur scribes. And by New Testament times, you really, in terms of the professionalism of the scribes, uh, granted, they were kind of along the spectrum between professional and amateur. Uh, because remember, Christianity pretty much until 325 was illegal. And, and, and there were a, a lot of different persecutions along the way. And so... You know, uh, a lot of times there wouldn't be professional scribes. There'd be more amateur scribes. And, and, uh, and they're quietly trying to go about their work. And, and, uh, but nevertheless, whether they're amateur scribes or they're professional scribes, they still, they still had a, uh, a vested interest in what they were doing because most of them were people of faith. And they understood the significance of what they were doing. And so they weren't trying to send a garbled message and we're going to talk about this a little bit later when we look at some of the textual variations. But so, so their purpose, each scribe along the way, they weren't trying to go, oh, where, where can I do something different to get a different message? There's no evidence to support that at all. They legitimately were trying to send the message that they received. That's, that's number one. Number two is, uh, it was written messages. It wasn't oral messages. I mean, let's go back to the telephone game again, okay? It wouldn't be nearly as fun if somebody wrote a little statement out on a piece of paper and say, I handed it to the next person and said, okay, copy this, and then send it to the next person and have them copy it. Listen, I guarantee you, unless someone again wants to purposely get the thing garbled, you can't mess that up, really. I mean, they're looking at they don't have to remember things. You know, it's tough to remember things. Me this morning, getting up here, I was going to tell you about JL's great word about this beautiful day. And I, I go, I can't even remember it. And uh, that happens all the time. But if somebody hands me something written, that's a whole different matter. Well, these, as, the tra- as the text is being transmitted, it's being transmitted in written form. So scribes are getting a written document, and they're setting down... And their eyeballs are going to the written document. And they are meticulous. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute as they're trying to, uh, to, uh, to reproduce that written document. So that's different than the telephone game. Another thing that's different is there's only one line of transmission in the telephone game, right? One line. And, uh, but it wasn't that way in the New Testament with the, with the manuscripts and with the transmission of the text. These letters were, were original documents, were, were copied, multiple copies were made, and they were sent out all over the place. And so you've got multiple streams and lines of transmissions that you can compare things against. And in the game of telephone, you can't then skip down to the third person and say, hey, wait a minute, before I accept what you say, let me go ask what this person said. You can't do that. That's no fun in the game. But... When it comes to evaluating manuscripts of the New Testament, you can go to the 15th century and the 14th century and the 9th century and the 8th century and the 4th century, and you can evaluate all of those different links along the transmission process. And so listen, if anybody says to you, isn't the transmission of Scripture, didn't it work like the game of telephone? Uh, The answer is, let me hear you say it, the answer is, thank you very much. Yeah, the answer is no. It ain't nothing like the game of telephone. So let's get that out of the way. Okay, next slide, please. So let's talk about the scribes and how they transmitted the texts. 
this is a place, this is over in Israel. It's on the, uh, uh, the western shore of the Dead Sea in the Judean desert. These are the remains of a community that was there called Qumran. And some of you have been to Qumran. Next slide, please. And uh, it, it is where the, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time was made. And that is uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered from 1947 to 1956. And they were discovered in about 11 caves. It's a great story how it started. And this, as you're standing at the, in that, among the ruins of the Qumran community, and if you look over, you'll see this cave here. That's actually Cave 4. That's the mother load was found there. About 75% of all the Dead Sea Scrolls were found there in Cave 4. And some of the best preserved. Most of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, weren't, weren't very well preserved, and they were just teeny, teeny, tiny, tiny fragments and took literally decades and decades and decades to piece together uh, these scrolls. Uh, but, uh, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now, let me tell you about the significance of that. Next slide, please, and we'll take a look at the significance of it. By the way, that's where you can see them today. There's always some on display, uh, and that was just taken a couple of weeks ago. That's my daddy and my daughter who went with us on the last trip and that is uh, a building called the Shrine of the Book at the Israeli Museum. And uh, the top of the, the building there is designed to look like the, the top of a jar, the kind of jars that many of the scrolls were found in those caves. Next slide, please. And uh, when you go into the Shrine of the Book, you'll see uh, the Isaiah scroll. They'll have a, a facsimile, a, a, a beautiful reproduction of the Isaiah scroll. Now, the Isaiah scroll is about 24 feet long. It contains the entire book of Isaiah, uh, written in Hebrew. And uh, by the way, it's the Essene community. Let me go back to the Qumran community. Most scholars believe that that was the community that, uh, that copied all of these scrolls and hid them in the caves uh, around the Dead Sea area. Uh, but uh, as I said, most of them were in fragments. But the Isaiah scroll was intact. And uh, is the, the most well-preserved, fully intact copy of the book of Isaiah. And uh, it is absolutely an amazing thing. And so, next slide, please. Uh, here's what's so interesting about it. And this kind of gives us some insights into the copying process and the scribal process. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, before that copy of Isaiah was found, the oldest Hebrew Bible was a book that was called the Aleppo Codex. Uh, it was called the Aleppo Codex because it was kept in Aleppo, Syria for about 500 years. Um, it, it, was, it was made, it goes back, it dates back, as you can see there on the slide, it dates back to about 930 A.D. And so that was the oldest copy of the... Of the uh, uh, of the book of Isaiah in Hebrew in existence, the Aleppo Codex. By the way, in case you don't know, let me tell you what Codex is. We'll use that term occasionally in the next couple of days. A, a Codex just means a book form. Uh, you see Isaiah scroll and then the Aleppo Codex. Before the Codex, before people... I don't know who it was, but somebody got the bright idea uh, of, hey... Why don't we cut this scroll up into smaller, place, uh, smaller pages and stack them up and sew them together? And boy, there was a lot of benefits to that. First of all, it was more compact. 
Like I said, the Isaiah scroll. Think about the Isaiah scroll. 24 feet long. That was one book of the Bible. You know, you couldn't carry a whole lot of books around like that. I mean, can you imagine coming to church carrying all your scrolls? And so one very compact. And so when they started stacking them up in pages and sewing them together, it you know, became a lot more compact. And also there was the economy of, uh, of material because now, unlike scrolls, which were written on one side, you could write on both sides of the page. And, uh, and then, you know, it facilitated an ease of referencing some things. Can you imagine trying to reference things on a scroll? You've got to roll it all out to try to find your place and all. But when you've got this page, this book form, this codex, it, so it made it a lot easier. And also it preserved things more because usually these codexes... They had hard covers put on them and they were sewn together. And so that's what codex means, the Aleppo book. Uh, in fact, books today are really codexes. Uh, but we don't use that term any because it's really used now to talk about ancient manuscripts that are in book form. But that's what the Aleppo codex is. So here's the significance. Now look at those dates. The Isaiah scroll that was found at the, the, at the Dead Sea back in the uh, uh, 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s. And then before that, the oldest copy of Isaiah that existed was from about 1000 AD. So, suddenly you've got this 1000 year gap. Suddenly now the oldest copy of the Hebrew Bible, the oldest copy of Isaiah, suddenly is no longer at 1000 AD, but it goes back 1000 years. Now we've got one that's 1000 years older than the oldest one we had. Now, here's what would be so interesting and what scholars were really interested to see. Okay, over that thousand years, how much did it change? Let's see how much the book of Isaiah really changed in a thousand years. You know, can you imagine a thousand years of playing telephone? How, it, it, surely it's not going to look anything like it. A thousand years. Well, you can see... Uh, the significance of this, more than 95% is identical. More than 95%. The 5% that's not identical, the variations consisted primarily of just obvious slips of the pen. As scholars are looking at it and they're comparing the Aleppo Codex, Isaiah from the Aleppo Codex to the Isaiah scroll, the... They're finding, you know, they can see where scribes being human beings, no matter how meticulous they are, you know, there's occasional slips of pens and there's spelling alterations and things like that over a thousand years. And so what this tells us is that uh, these scribes were serious about what they were doing. And so when we talk about the transmission of the text, we're talking about people who were really serious about what they were doing. They didn't approach it in a cavalier way. Uh... And so it gives us a lot of confidence then in the transmission of the text. Next slide, please. Real quick, let's, a couple of more things. So comparing the New Testament copies. Let me tell you about this real quick, and this is kind of where we're going to leave off, and we're going to finish this up tomorrow. When it comes to the New Testament copies, next slide, please. What we can say about this, about the New Testament, is it is in a class all by itself. The number of ancient copies of the New Testament... There is nothing like it. There is no other ancient document like it in the world. People go, how do we know that the book that we have today, that we call the Bible that we're reading, how do we know it hasn't been hopelessly changed from the originals? And the answer is because we've got copies of copies of copies of copies. We've got more ancient copies of the New Testament than any other ancient book, period, and it isn't even close. I wish we had time to kind of compare it 
to some of the ancient books. Real quick, the next slide, I'll give you a, one example of them, or two real quick examples, but I won't deal with it much. Next slide. Uh, Tacitus, a man who was the uh, uh, first century uh, uh, Roman senator. He was a historian. He lived in the first century. He wrote The Annals of Imperial Rome. It was about a 16-volume work. And uh, most of what we know today about life in first century and second century Rome, we get from Tacitus. Can you advance the slide, please, real quick? Uh, it's frozen. Okay, don't worry about it. Well, the question is, uh, the, the oldest copy of that, uh, scholars don't even question, historians don't even question whether Tacitus's Annals of Ancient Rome, if, if he really wrote it. They go, yeah, sure he wrote it. Of course he wrote it. Well, how many ancient copies of that do we have? We got one. And we don't even have all the volumes, but we got one. And it's about, oh, about 800 years or so uh, later than when it was originally written. But nobody questions it. We've got one. There's, we can look at a lot of other first century writings and we can see the same thing. But when we come to the New Testament, people, well, how many copies do we have, ancient copies? Like I said, it's in a class all by itself. Not one. Not nine. Not 30. Not a thousand. We've got approximately 30 thousand ancient copies of the new testament that date back all the way from the middle of the first century in that the time of the apostles we've got some fragments now that date to the late first century most scholars think that uh we've got several from the second century and uh, so we then we get them from the 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century, all the way up to the 15th century, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Uh, we've got about almost 6,000 of those are written in the original language of Greek. Uh, about 24,000 in all different kinds of translations from all different kinds of centuries. We are inundated with biblical manuscripts. Now, we're going to stop there. And, and tomorrow, we're going to kind of take up from that spot and, uh, and what we're going to do, let me give you a preview of what we're going to finish up tomorrow. And we're going to kind of press the gas a little bit tomorrow because it's going to be the last time that we have together. We're going to go, okay, uh, we're going to say just a little bit more about uh, all of these copies and, and kind of how it all works and, and, and how scholars bring all these copies together and, and, and how we can, based on all of those copies and the quality of all those copies, and I'll show you some of those things that are really interesting, how we can have such incredible confidence that, yeah, God made sure that we've got the original message. Then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the next question that people ask. And the next question is usually this. Well, I've heard there's a bunch of errors in it, like 200,000 or 400,000. And so if someone throws that out at us, we need to be able to deal with that and say, okay, let me explain what people mean when they say errors. Let's take a look at that. And so then we're going to look at a few of the passages in Scripture uh, that, that people question whether it was an uh, original part of the New Testament. So hopefully we're going to cram all that in. Hopefully tomorrow I'm going to get started right at 8 straight up. And, uh, but I have thoroughly enjoyed my morning with you and look forward to continuing it tomorrow. Let's end with a prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. We're thankful for your word. As we think about your word, we know that in your providence you have ensured that we have in our possession your book. We know that you love us. We know that you have spent 
since the fall, you have spent time bringing the solution to our problem into existence. That is the Christ. And Father, we know that you would never then drop the ball in explaining to us what you have done for us through Christ. And so we know, we have confidence that what we have is your word. And Father, thank you for giving us the evidence. Thank you for giving us the ability to see these things, to recognize these things. And Father, we pray that we will cherish your word, that we will embrace it for what it truly is, your book. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.